0: So, as uh, you heard, we are back in Matthew 11 tonight. It's been a a few weeks since we've been there, but just to give you a reminder of of what's happening here, Jesus is giving a, a sort of kind of impromptu speech, to uh, a crowd about John the Baptist. And, you know, not like uh, Jesus, who, who knows everything, can, can actually give an, an impromptu speech, but that's kind of what he's doing. He, he's not planning, uh, at least according to the crowds, on, on discussing that. But these disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him this question that, that John the Baptist sent them to do. Jesus answers their question. He tells them that uh, they need to go back to John and tell John that he really is the Messiah. So the disciples leave, and then Jesus turns and starts talking to the crowd. He starts talking to the crowd about John the Baptist. And uh, we saw a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, that, um, that what he told them was that John was the greatest person that ever lived. And when we looked at that passage together, we saw in it a kind of implicit command from Jesus to us that we should seek to live lives greater than John the Baptist because we're in the kingdom, and John wasn't in the kingdom. But tonight, uh, Jesus kind of transitions in his speech uh, from talking to the crowds about John to to talking specifically to the crowds about themselves. He starts to confront the crowds. And he does this by uh, essentially uh, kind of condemning the crowds for how they responded to John and how they responded to Jesus. You see, what happened is... Well, the crowds expected John the Baptist to act a specific way. They expected Jesus to act a specific way. And then, when, when John and Jesus didn't do what they wanted them to do, they did what, what any kind of child does in that situation. They started whining and complaining. And that's exactly who Jesus is going to compare them to in the text tonight. And, and after that, after they complain, they do the next thing that kind of whiny-faced little kids do started name-calling. They say, John the Baptist has a demon. They say, Jesus is, is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And as we look at this tonight, as we see Jesus kind of address the crowds and then finally turn to denouncing them. Denounce is just a fancy word that means pronounce judgment upon. He condemns them. Them and the cities that they come from. What we're going to see as we, as we look at this passage is we're going to see that Jesus' call on us out of this text is that we wouldn't be people pleasers. That we would uh, answer charges against us with with wise deeds instead of wise words. And we would remember that judgment is coming. Those are the three things we're going to see tonight. We're going to see that we shouldn't be people pleasers, we should speak with wise deeds and not just wise words. And lastly, we should remember that judgment is coming. See, the first thing in the first two verses, in verses 16 and 17, this is where Jesus tells us that we shouldn't be people-pleasers. Now, you can all look down at your Bibles, or you can look up on the screen, and you can tell me that Jesus doesn't say those words. Jesus doesn't say, don't be a people-pleaser. But in how he describes these crowds and how he describes the people and how he describes what the people said about him and John the Baptist, this command comes out. What he does is he criticizes the crowds because they're complaining when Jesus doesn't do exactly what they want Him to do. They say... Uh, You know, we we played the flute for you and you didn't dance, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. That's what these these kids complain about, right? They're expecting these people to do exactly what they want them to do. My own kids do this. When they want me to put together a puzzle with them and I've got something else that I have to do, they get upset. They say, I want to do this now. I want you to do this with me now. And eventually, complaining turns to to crying and whining and, and all sorts of other things. And what Jesus is saying is that we shouldn't be out to please the crowds. We shouldn't be out to please people. And, and for some of us tonight, we especially need to hear that. See, when pleasing other people, if, if Jesus were to do that, if he were, if he were to, to try to make these crowds happy, or if we try to make the, the crowds in our lives happy, what we're doing is we're living our lives with the goal of pleasing this person or this group of people instead of trying to please God. If Jesus tried to start pleasing these crowds, He would stop pleasing God. Because God told him to do one thing, but these crowds want Him to do something else. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1.10. This is after he's kind of already started reaming the the Galatians out about something. And he says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He's saying you can't can't do both. Because what happens is is the crowd, the people's approval, starts to mean more than God's does. And so Paul can't be both a servant of Christ seeking to please Him, seeking His approval, and also seeking the the approval of the Galatians who he's writing to. Now it's important for us to know, because as we think about this, sometimes we might think, but, but... you know, letting people down, disappointing people, people being mad at us. You know, sometimes that that could be sinful. And that's right, it could be. But we know that it always isn't because Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus let these crowds down. He disappointed these crowds. He didn't please them. And clearly it wasn't sin because because Jesus didn't sin. When it comes to pleasing people, there's really two types of, of people pleasers. The first one is the the kind of obvious type that we all probably think of when we think of someone who is a a people pleaser. Somebody who makes choices, sets their schedule, sets their priorities on the basis of whether other people are going to be happy with what they do or not. These are the kind of people that, that might run their family ragged in an effort to make someone happy. Their entire goal is to seek the approval of someone else. They have this kind of inward need for other people to be pleased with them. That's the first type. The second type is uh, kind of a lot more subtle and a lot easier to overlook. And the reason why I know that is because this is the type of people pleaser that I am. And if two years ago someone would have asked me, someone would have asked my wife, is Dan a people pleaser? Uh, I would have said no, and she would have said definitely no. But this type of people pleaser, the way it works is um, they are really kind of selfish, and they don't generally care what other people think until other people aren't happy with what they do, and they want them to be pleased. It's not that we plan our schedule or make choices or do things in order to please other people. We just do whatever we want and want people to be happy with it. Clearly that's messed up, right? It's not something I should do. Um, it's not something that we should do. But regardless of, of what the motivation it is for, for seeking or wanting or needing someone else's approval, that the thing is exactly the same. The bottom line is that, that something outside of ourselves that's not God is more important to us than God. We want their pleasure, not His pleasure. We want their approval, not His approval. We want to serve and worship and love and glorify them instead of God. And I think we all know that that's not okay. Okay. And you might be thinking, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm with you. That's not okay. But what do we do about it? How, how, how do we speak the Gospel to ourselves in these situations so that we're not compelled by this, this inward need within us? Well, clearly, you know, we, we need to focus on God's approval instead of man's approval. And we also need to realize something that's just kind of logical, and that's that there's really no way we are ever going to please anyone, because, because whether it's God or a person like you know, my mom or your mom or, or whoever you're seeking to please, the only way to please them is to be perfect. And whether it's a person or whether it's God, it doesn't matter how much you try, it doesn't matter how hard you work, eventually you're going to let them down. You're going to get sick. Your kid's going to puke on the clothes that they were supposed to wear that grandma bought for them to wear on her birthday. You're going to forget something or neglect something or not do something that that person wants you to do and eventually you're going to let them down. So trying to do it, to to be completely perfect for them, doesn't make sense because it's never going to happen anyway. And clearly, with God, who who, who doesn't just see our inward actions, or or our outward actions, but but also sees the inward motivations of our heart, we're going to let Him down probably long before we can walk or talk. It's not going to take long for us to not be perfect in His eyes. The only answer to this desire to please people or to please God is the Gospel. It's the only thing that's going to set us free from it. The only person who is pleasing to God is who? That's a real question. It's Jesus, right? He's the only person that's ever going to be completely perfect and pleasing to God. No one else is. And the only way we are ever going to be pleasing to God is if when God looks at me, He doesn't see me, but He sees Jesus. And here's another question, just to kind of give you a heads up. What's the the only thing, the the one thing, that without which it's impossible to please God? Faith, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The book of Hebrews tells us that. And if we put those two together, that, that the only person that's pleasing to God is Christ, and the only way that I can be pleasing to God is faith, and the conclusion is the only way I can be pleasing to God is by faith in Christ. Because when I place all my trust and all my hope and all my faith in Him, then He comes in and does what I can't do. Please God. doesn't matter how hard we work or how hard we plan or what choices we make. The only thing that's going to make us pleasing to God is Christ. And the way this fixes both our, our God pleasing problem and our people pleasing problem is that it doesn't matter what other people think about us. It doesn't matter whether my mom's pleased with me. It doesn't matter whether your mom's pleased with you. The only thing that matters in the long run is whether God is pleased with you. And if He was pleased with you, who, who cares what they think? And I'm going to qualify that in a few minutes, so don't freak out. (laughs) The only thing that is going to make us pleasing is Christ. There are two other ways that we need to apply this, this kind of implicit command that Jesus is making. The first is that we shouldn't require other people to please us. So, if, if you're a, a boss or a parent or a husband or a wife or a coach or anyone who has any authority at all over other people, any kind of influence, don't require people to please you. Because when we do that, when, when we want them to please us, we're already setting them up to fail on the first thing we talked about. Let me explain what I mean. Our, our, uh, if, you're, if you're a boss, your, your employees should seek to do their work to the glory of God and not the glory of you. Coaches, your athletes, should seek to compete in such a way that glorifies God and not you. Parents, Your children should obey you for one reason and one reason only. And it's not because mom or dad said so. It's because the God that's worthy of all their worship and all their praise and all their service and all their love said so. And if we tell them that they need to do it to please us, we're setting them up to fail. Because they're never going to please us. When those under our authority let us down, we need to remind them of the truth of the gospel, just like we need to remind ourselves of it. That they need to please Him. They need to seek His approval and not ours. They need God's forgiveness and not ours. They need to give their obedience and love and worship and service to God and not to us. The second thing that, that we need to apply out of this this kind of implicit command of Jesus for us not to be people-pleasers, is that just because we shouldn't seek to please people doesn't mean we have license not to. doesn't mean that we should all be people-provokers. And that's a temptation that's real. We shouldn't go around seeking to please people, but we also shouldn't go around seeking to irritate them. See, the see, the, if, we, if we remember back to when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, where, where Jesus talked about the fact that peacemakers are blessed, what he's getting at is that there's some sort of, of middle road that we walk by faith between being a person on one side who, who, who seeks and lives their life to please others, or someone on the other side who is only concerned about making people mad, we don't, we don't avoid conflict, but we don't seek conflict. We, we walk in the middle and we confront it when it arises with the truth of the gospel. So don't seek conflict. Don't avoid it. Deal with it when it comes up with, with the wisdom that comes through Christ in the gospel. One more thing on these, these first two verses. This is kind of a minor thing, but, but it has big implications for the way we should live our lives. And that's by noticing this, this comparison that Jesus makes here. He says, he uses this simile, which we all learned about in probably like 7th grade and can't remember what it is, but it's a comparison. He's comparing the crowds to the, the children in the marketplace. He says they're just like those children in the marketplace. And the thing we should notice here is that Jesus saw these children in the marketplace because he's out in the marketplace. He gets this, this great insight into his culture because he's out there living in it, walking in it, doing things in it. He's not at home, sitting on the couch, watching CSI Miami, where he sees this thing happen and think, "That's just like those crowds." He's out living life, doing ministry, observing what goes on and seeking to understand the people He's trying to communicate with. And we need to do the same thing. If we want to communicate the Gospel to our community, we need to be out in our community. In order to communicate it to our culture, we need to understand our culture. And to understand our culture, we need to be a part of it, not a part from it. Let me say that again. To, to understand our culture. Hannibal, where we live, which is probably different from how most of us think and act. In order to understand our culture, we need to be a part of it, instead of a part from it. We need to be out there doing things, watching people, talking to people, seeking to understand the person that we're trying to communicate the gospel to. Because if we're not doing that, there's no way we're going to be able to communicate to them in a way that connects God's truth that they need to their lives. And if we're not doing that, then we're just wasting our time. So the first two verses, don't please people, don't irritate people, be, be out there living life, living out the gospel in a way that finds that, that kind of middle road between seeking conflict and avoiding conflict. The next two verses, this is where Jesus explains the kind of charges that the crowds had made against him. tells us this. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John, the first guy, he's, he's what we could call an, an abstainer. He abstained from things. He didn't do things. He didn't uh, eat normal food, right? He, he uh, ate locusts and wild honey. He didn't wear normal clothes. He wore a, a coat or, a, a I don't know, a shirt of camel's hair and, and leather. And he didn't drink wine. And here, just kind of a, a side note, it's interesting that in Jesus' day, not drinking wine is odd. In fact, it's 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 demonic according to these people. And that's that's an, another sermon and another conversation, but just, just find that interesting. So John doesn't do the things that normal people do. He doesn't do what everyone else does, and that's strange to people. And because that's strange, that's kind of crazy, they say this guy has a demon. He doesn't do what, what I expect him to do, he doesn't walk in my circles, he doesn't fit in my box. And so I'm just going to call him a demon and and let him be out there in the wilderness by himself. Jesus is on the other side of things. Jesus came eating and drinking. He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors. And that doesn't fit in their box either. They don't understand why he does that. They don't understand why he doesn't live just like the Pharisees who are the religious leaders that they all respect and revere. And so they lump him into the group with all the people who do what he do. He does, and who he hangs out with. They say he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's a friend of sinners. But there's a fundamental problem with the accusations that the crowds make. It doesn't matter whether they're accusing Jesus or whether they're accusing John, the problem's exactly the same. And we have the same problem they have. It's that we are abstainers too. We are gluttons and drunkards too. Let me explain what I mean by that. You might say, how, how am I an abstainer like John? I don't, I don't wear camel's hair. I don't eat locusts and wild honey. I don't maybe abstain from alcohol. How, how, how am I like that? Well, you see, we all have at least one thing doesn't matter what it is. Most of us probably have more than one thing. We all have at least one thing that we don't do, that other people do, and because we don't do it, we think we're better than them. I'll give you a personal example, one of my things. I am a book snob. I am. I I like to read good books. I like to read uh, good authors and good writing. And when I see someone reading a book that I don't think is a good book, in my head I think, well, that's kind of sad for them that they're reading that. I don't read that. And it's as if I think in my head that Jesus is looking down from heaven at me, sitting in a coffee shop and thinking, I'm so pleased with Dan. He's, he's reading Tim Keller, and that guy on the other side of the coffee shop, he's reading Max Lucado, and, and everybody knows that Max Lucado is lame. But that's what we do. We pick these things, whatever it is, and we think that we're better, we're more pleasing to to God because we don't do it, and they do. And we start to make lists in our minds. I'm acceptable to God because I read good books, I don't read Max Lucado. I'm acceptable to God because my wife doesn't work outside the house. I'm acceptable to God because I uh, don't spend money like they do. I'm acceptable to God because I don't go to that church. And the problem is, is that whenever we, we, we make those lists, what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus plus something else makes me pleasing to God. And when we do that, we lose Jesus. He's not on our list anymore. And the only thing we're left standing before God with is our list of stuff that we don't do. And I think we all know how that's going to end for us. The only thing, again, the only thing that makes us pleasing to God is our faith in Christ. And so the minute we try to think that we're better than someone else because we don't do what they do, We're saying that He's not enough. We're saying they have to do that. They have to have faith in Christ. And they have to not read bad books. Which is ridiculous. We're also all gluttons and drunkards. And here... It might not be food. It might not be alcohol. But we all have something. Just like with the the, the abstention, we all have something that we do more than other people that makes us think that we're better than them. And so we point the finger at someone else. We say, you know, they, they, they eat too much or they drink too much. Instead of considering our own hearts. Maybe it's, it's how much we work. Maybe it's how much we spend. Maybe it's how much time we spend with our friends and our families in our houses instead of being out in the community. It doesn't matter what it is. It's the same idea. We all have these things that we think makes us more pleasing to God because we do it more than other people. Or we don't do it as much as they do. The thing that we should ask ourselves about these verses, when we see these, these people calling John the Baptist, calling Jesus names, we should ask ourselves, what do they call us? They called John a demon. They called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in, in the video we saw at the beginning, this girl who left her Fifth Avenue apartment to move into the South Bronx, she said that everyone, from her church community to the police, said she was crazy because of what she did. So the question for us is, is what are people calling us for how we're trying to live out the mission that Christ has given us? And as we try to think for examples... What they call us. Or maybe if there's a lack of answers. tells us a lot about how faithful, faithful we are being to the mission that He's given us. If there isn't anything that disturbs other people by how we live out the mission that He's given us, we may not be living it out. That should alarm us. That should cause us to wake up and think about how we live our lives. The last thing we need to notice in these two verses is how Jesus responds to these charges. He doesn't make a a biblical and logical argument that proves how his position is right and their position is wrong. He gives them this kind of cryptic proverbial statement. He says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. What he's saying is he's saying, look at what I do. And then make that charge. Look at how I live my life, how I minister to these people, and then see if those charges actually stick. And for us, we need to do the same thing. We need to, to understand what wisdom is and then try and live it out. And wisdom, I think, is one of those words that uh, people use, people throw around, and we kind of all assume that we all know what it means. But I think that a lot of times we kind of blur the line between, between it and, and discernment. So I just kind of want to talk about these words real quick and, and don't, don't go home and, and look them up on dictionary.com and send me an email saying, you know, you gave the wrong definitions. I'm talking about these, these biblical words. So they might not actually match what, you know, Merriam-Webster says. Discernment is having good judgment. Deciding between two different options. This one's a good option, this one's a bad option. That's discernment. Having good judgment. Wisdom, what we're talking about in this passage, is showing good Judgment. It's about doing the right thing, doing the, 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 making the good decision. A lot of times we kind of combine these into one thing, but really they're, they're two separate things. Wisdom in the Bible is, at its, at its most basic level is right living. So what Jesus is telling these crowds is He's saying, I'm living the right way. And if you take a look at my life, if you take a look at the fruit of my ministry, you will see that. And that's the only thing that he does to answer their charge. He says, look at what I do. And this is exactly what we see in 1 uh, in Peter. Peter, who clearly, at times of his life, lacked wisdom, says a very similar thing to Jesus. He says that, that we should live having a good conscience So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He's saying that no matter what they say about us, it should be proven wrong by how we live. I bet those people in that girl's Christian community that said that what she was doing was crazy, if they would go and spend time there with her in those apartments, seeing the ministry that she's doing, they would say, I was wrong. You're not crazy. I am. But in order for Jesus to do what He says, in order for Him to prove them wrong by His right deeds, He needs to do the same thing that we talked about earlier. He needs to be out in the community living His life, doing ministry, teaching people, healing people, doing the things that He said He would do. We can't prove people wrong by our actions if they don't ever see our actions. We have to live out the Gospel among them and in front of them. The last five verses is where uh, Jesus turns to start uh, denouncing these, these people and the cities they're from. And this is where the, the call for us tonight is to remember that judgment is coming. It's, it's a real thing that's going to happen. That won't be avoided. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have Repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyr and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted into heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. really cool thing about these verses is that uh, last, last year sometime, I met a church planner from, from Tyre. He's a guy that, that lives over there, planted a church in, in a you know, abundantly Muslim community. And he told me this story about this guy who's like a, kind of the equivalent of a, of a Muslim pastor. He's not an imam, but he's like the guy below that, who, who came to his house Heard the Gospel night after night after night after night, and then finally repented. He renounced his faith. Became a a believer in Christ. He repented just like Jesus said they would have. Because he had an opportunity to respond to the Gospel. But Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, these, these people that Jesus is talking to, they didn't respond. And in Jesus' words to them, in the statement that he makes, they they tell us really three big things about God. And this first one is going to be kind of theological, but but I want you to hang on because it's really cool. and It's important. The first one is that Jesus knows what would have happened. He says, right, if the mighty works that were done here would have been done there, they would have repented. So he's saying if Sodom, a long time ago in the Old Testament, had this chance, they would have repented. This means that Jesus knows what would have happened. And we know God God is all-knowing. Jesus is all-knowing. He knows everything that happened in the past, everything that's happening in the present, and everything that will happen in the future. We get that. But what this verse tells us is that Jesus also knows everything that could have happened, everything that could be happening, and everything that could possibly happen in the future. Here's an easier way to think about this. When I was little, I used to read these books that are like interactive storybooks. I'm sure they still exist out there. But the way they work is, is you read the story and then you come to a point in the story where the author forces you to make a choice. And then there's a list of options and a list of page numbers that correspond to those options. So the story could be like, you know, Billy and his family are going on vacation. And then you have a list of places they could go. If you want them to go to Kansas City, turn to page 72. If you want them to go to St. Louis, turn to page 65. Well, God's knowledge of of time is kind of like the author's knowledge of that book. He knows, the the author knows every possible storyline from beginning to end. He knows where you would go if you picked this choice versus that choice, where you would end up at the end. God's knowledge is similar, except it's of everything, all times. All futures. All, all everything. And I say that not, not to just you know, make, make our heads explode as we try to wrap our minds around that. I say that because these kinds of things, when we, when we learn these kinds of things about God, it shouldn't just cause us to think, oh, that's boring theology and it's confusing and I don't want to spend time on it. It should cause us to say, God is amazing. There is more about God than we can ever possibly know or ever possibly imagine. He's so far beyond what we are, it's, it's unfathomable. We can never understand that. We can never possibly know all that He knows. Because He knows everything that could possibly ever be known. And that should cause us to worship Him. And like Matt said at the beginning, just the fact that He's forgiving should be enough. But He's infinitely more than that. Infinitely. There's no end to all the things that we could be and should be and need to be praising God for. In uh, A.W. Tozer's book about, about God's attributes... The Knowledge of the Holy. It's this, this really short book. I mean, I'd recommend it. Uh, he has this quote which says, the most important thing about us is what we think about God. More than anything, the most important thing about me, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And there's another quote that goes along with that and I don't know who this is from. But it's that whatever our view of God is, it's too small. Whatever our view of God is, it's too small. It's because God is infinite. So the the moment we try to think God is this big, He's bigger. And if we would really take these things to heart. If we would really strive to to know these kinds of things about God and and who He is. If we really thought that, that what we think about Him is the most important thing about us. If we did that, it would change the way we read the Bible, it would change the way we pray, it would change the way we worship, it would change the way we live, it would change everything. Because if we would take God out of the box we put Him in, in our minds and let Him be who He really is, there's nothing we would want to do other than worship Him for who He is. He knows Everything that could have happened. Everything that could be happening right now and everything that could possibly happen in the future. If if, if that kind of God doesn't cause us to want to worship Him, no kind of God is. There's something wrong with us. The second thing these verses tell us about God is that He is not required to meet our expectations of fairness. God is not required to meet our expectations of fairness. You see, it's not unjust for Jesus in this passage to give some people more revelation than others. The people in Capernaum have chances that the people of Sodom didn't. The people in Hannibal have chances that the people in the middle of the bush in Africa don't have. It's not unjust for God to do that. God can do whatever pleases Him. The third thing is related to this, and that's that, this idea that Jesus says a couple times, He says, it will be more bearable. He's saying that The amount of revelation and the amount of opportunity we have increases the punishment we will face if we undergo His judgment. More revelation equals more damnation. That's what he's saying. For those who have no opportunity to hear the Gospel they'll still face punishment. They'll still face His judgment. The Bible's clear about that. You can go to Romans 1 and read that and see that. But what Jesus tells us here is that it will be worse for those who do have the opportunity to hear and reject it. For people like us in North America, this this should be sobering. It should cause us to wake up and realize what we're accountable for. If you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're not someone who has taken advantage of the opportunities you have. You should realize that simply being born where you were born, having the opportunities you have, you are more accountable than you now. And if you're here tonight and you you do have a relationship with Christ, you have trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation, we we need to be thankful that He underwent the judgment for us. He he bore the punishment for us. But I think that sometimes we, we get that in our head and it causes us to not think that that sin and obedience matters as much. See, because what we do sometimes is we think, okay, Jesus bore the penalty for my sin. That's something that happened in the past and what I do right now doesn't affect that at all. But what we need to remember is that God way back then before Christ went to the cross, before God poured out the penalty for for all of my sin and all of your sin on Christ, God looked into the future and He knew exactly how much sin Christ needed to pay for. And He punished Him for it. What that means is that for me, as a Christian, if I go out tonight and I rob a bank... That means that all those sins I commit later tonight, Christ paid for back then. And so we shouldn't think of that, of of Him paying the penalty back then as some just kind of finite number that doesn't change. Because what we do now affects what He had to do then. And so, when we struggle with sin... When we're facing temptation, what we should think is we should think that this sin that I'm facing temptation for, Christ died for. He was punished for. So, if I decide to get angry, or I decide to look at porn, or I decide to to lie to someone or steal something... what I should ask myself in that moment as I'm facing temptation is, is this worth more to me than Him? Does He matter that little that I don't care that He had to be punished more because of what I'm about to do? Christ died for everything that we have done, everything that we will do. And that should, should cause us to wake up to the fact that, that our obedience matters and our sin matters. And because we live where we do, we are much more accountable than others. And as Jesus said, the judgment is more severe. As we think about this passage as a whole, the thing that Jesus says of these cities... What we should ask is what would Jesus say if if He he were here today? What would He say to us? What what questions would He ask us about about the chances we've been given? The mighty works that have been done here? And really at some point this is going to happen. But tonight, what what would Jesus say to Hannibal? We have... More than than 60 churches. We can go buy a Bible at Walmart, go to a hotel and get a Bible. We can listen to to podcasts and watch videos and sermons and, and read all kinds of books that tell us about God. We have all this revelation that we've been given. Could Jesus say to us tonight that that, that Chorazin and Capernaum and Bethsaida would have repented if they had what we have? And this isn't just some hypothetical question. There are people that live next door to us that are going to face a much more severe judgment than the people in Jesus' day because of what we have access to. And me and you are one of the things that they have access to. We've got to be out there. We've got to be talking to them, sharing the Gospel with them so that they know that this punishment is coming. What would Jesus say to B.C.? We have a group of people who have been gathered together with, with a common purpose, a common desire. We've been gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit to complete the mission that Christ has given us in this city. What would He say about what we've been doing with what He's given us? The last thing we should ask is what, what would He say to me? What would He say to you? How have we used the, the gifts and abilities and, and time and, and money and, and life that God has given us? If if others had what we have would they glorify him more would they worship him more would they serve him more would they complete his mission more than we do with what he's given us And I, and I don't say this to 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 guilt us into doing something that's not going to solve anything say this because we should we should wake up and realize what we have the opportunities we have we watched this conference last week and one of the things they kept saying again and again and again is that it's possible that the great commission could get finished in our lifetimes that means that Jesus could really come back in our lifetimes But do we, do we live like we want that to happen? Do we live like we actually believe that the people on our streets and, and in our city will actually respond to the Gospel? Or do we just stay, in, stay inside or, or stay on, on our side of the restaurant and ignore the, the command that, that Christ has given us and, and just let Him Pay for that sin back then. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who completely surpasses our understanding. Who completely surpasses any hope we could ever have of, of even beginning to, to understand how incredibly massive You are. how we thank You that even though we who are so small and so insignificant were Your enemies and instead of just killing us which would have been perfectly just because of Your great love and because of the mercy that You have You sent Your Son Again, beyond our understanding, to take on our flesh, to live a perfect life, to again be confronted by us, your enemies, and killed violently. And that was your plan to redeem us to reconcile us who are small and insignificant to You, who are infinite and incredibly worthy. God, we want our desire to be to please You and serve You and love You and worship You and glorify You and not anyone else or anything else. God, we thank You that Christ died so that we can please You in Him by faith. God, we ask that Your Spirit, God, one of the mighty works that, that we experience today would be in us and fill us and consume us and, and, and work among us in our day and our city. God, we want to see You glorified among the nations. We want to see Your mission lived out among us and through us. And we need Your help to do that. God, we thank You that You are patient and forgiving. And that even though judgment is coming, You are keeping it off. Even though we deserve to face it a long time ago, we have chances to repent now, and our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family have chances to repent now. And God, we ask that you would help us to be obedient to you and use the time we have wisely. God, we want to see you lifted up among us. And there's no way we can do that on our own. So we ask for Your help. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.